listeners to season six, episode 14 of Drinking and Screaming, a queer and feminist podcast about horror movies and cocktails. I'm Char and my pronouns are she, they. And I'm Kelly and my pronouns are they, them. This week, we are continuing our Halloween extravaganza (laughs) by watching The Omen from 1976. I'm also not sure if uh, we didn't really call it anything official, so I think I'm just throwing in a different Halloween fun name every time. Good. (laughs) (laughs) But before we dive into our discussion, we have an inspired cocktail creation that we made to match the mood and themes of the movie. So we made this drink to sound more complex than it is. This episode will contain discussion on sexism, miscarriages, and child death. If any of these things are something you need to not hear about today, feel free to skip this episode and come back next time. No problem. I called this cocktail Ominous Martini. Ah. I don't know if I spelt it right because I intentionally tried to spell it wrong. <laughs> um, I, this one's pretty simple. So we did a whole liquor run and we got like a bunch of strange concoctions and different liqueurs that we've never tried before. And really my intention going into this was to use some of the stuff that we haven't yet and see what I come up with. Um, (laughs) So this is using our, uh, we got rhubarb liqueur and coconut vodka. Now, uh, what I did is I did just a little less rhubarb liqueur than vodka. I said uh, one to one half. You can do whatever you want. It's a martini. Martinis are supposed to be personal and emotional <laughs> to you, the person drinking it. Um, and I sort of uh, added, I added some lemon juice to almost act as like a gradient between the two. Because one is uh, incredibly sweet and one is a little bit more like earthy. Uh, So the lemon juice sort of sits in the middle to facilitate an harmonious communication between these two liquors. Ooh, Um, I also love the cup you've put it in. It feels very the omen. Yeah, I chose our fanciest, um, almost gothic looking cup. Also probably from the 70s. (laughs) Yes, that's true. (laughs) So all of it is to say that, I don't know, it sounds complicated, but it's really not. And uh, I hope you like it. I actually... I was tasting this while I was making it just to make sure because I don't know what rhubarb liqueur usually goes in. I saw a lot of like, ooh, rhubarb pie, rhubarb uh, milkshake, rhubarb, etc. And I don't like rhubarb, so I can't fucking say if it's (laughs) like working. Listen, rhubarb is amazing. You just haven't had it the right way. It's just a it's just celery that wants attention. No, you can't say that. I had a rhubarb little, I was going to say farm, a patch of rhubarb (laughs) growing up at home in Montreal. And it was fantastic. Comes back every year. You get the best desserts out of it. And you get rhubarb liqueur, which clearly is a star in this drink. Um, I definitely feel like the coconut vodka comes through the most. It's very coconutty. Coconut is just a flavor that you can't really get rid of. Um. But the rhubarb liqueur cuts through with the lemon juice in a really nice way. Good. This is a char drink, but it's sweet, which yeah. is interesting. I don't hate it. I like it. I like it a lot. What really is weird is that it's bubbly. <laughs> I was, I'm not sure why. Nothing in here is bubbly. It's not actually like fizzing. It just made like bubbles <laughs> on the side of the glass. Yeah, it's got like bubbly legs, which is strange to me. Maybe the lemon juice is bad or maybe there's sugar in one of these. Because if I put the liquid down, the bubble. Oh, no, it's bubbles. 
I don't know. I'm not. Uh, I did my best. Why do you think <laughs> that if lemon juice is bad, I would make bubbles? Mold spores. I don't also, know. The I lemon use- juice is not bad. We are not using expired products as we make our coffee. I don't know. They're, we're not making them drink it. I would never tell them to make lemon use bad lemon juice. We don't have lemons in our fridge. I use the, the, the container one. Yeah. Oh, man. No, this is good. And I'm going to have it again when we're done recording this episode. Good. Now, patrons, you might be worried about this bad lemon juice and if you have to drink it. But as Kelly said, you do not. And that's because we love you. And we want to say thank you to all of our patrons who help support the show. That's Aubrey L, Colleen D, Les Represent Podcast, Roxanne B, Jackie V, Aiden T, Ollie A, Diana S, Jacob M, and Nicholas G. Thank you all so, so much for supporting Drinking and Screaming. We could not do it without you. And if you listeners would love a shout out of your own, just head to patreon.com slash drink and scream and then you get one. Yeah. If you subscribe, you get it. It's yours. Congratulations. Yeah. Also, fun fact, I know that we've really scaled back our Patreon because it's just been too much for us, but because it is Halloween, I have a very special present for you. I've got lists of horror movies that you can watch that are flavored by theme for the Halloween times. So if you're wanting, you know, fun, whimsy horror, if you're wanting slasher horror, if you're wanting classic horror, I got you. So check it out. Yeah. This week, speaking of classic horror, we watched The Omen from 1976, which premiered on June 25th of that year. It's written by David Seltzer and directed by Richard Donner. It stars Gregory Peck as American ambassador and adoptive father Robert Thorne. Lee Remick as loving mother of unknowingly adopted son, Catherine Thorne, and Harvey Stevens as potential devil son, Damien. This synopsis was written by Gary KMCD on IMDb. Thank you so much, Gary. Robert and Catherine Thorne seem to have it all. They are happily married and he is the U.S. ambassador to Great Britain, but they want nothing more than to have children. When Catherine has a stillborn child, Robert is approached by a priest at the hospital who suggests that they take a healthy newborn whose mother has just died in childbirth. Without telling his wife, he agrees. After relocating to London, strange events and ominous warnings of a priest lead him to believe that the child he took from that Italian hospital is evil incarnate. So the family doesn't second guess anything when a mysterious unknown woman from the agency arrives to take care of Damien after their previous nanny committed suicide by hanging. Throughout the film, this woman does odd things and is very protective of Damien, getting a special Rottweiler dog to keep watch over him. Thorne meets with the priest and Father Brennan tells him that Damien is the son of the devil born of a jackal and will kill everyone around him and will kill his wife's unborn child as well as his wife. The priest instructs Thorne to go to Israel to the city of Megiddo to find a man who can tell him how to kill the son of the devil. Thorne goes home and surprise, surprise, his wife tells him she's pregnant. 
Startled by this news, he also receives a phone call telling him to examine the newspaper's cover story about the priest's bizarre death. Kathy has been agitated by Damien of late, causing her to visit a therapist and tells Robert she wants to terminate the pregnancy. Disturbed by this, he goes to the therapist to discuss Kathy's concerns. While he's out, Damien's mother falls over a banister after being knocked over by Damien, injuring her and killing her unborn child. The fetus, okay? Whoever wrote this. Thorn does go to Israel to find the man the priest told him to find and is given seven special daggers with significance and instructions on how to kill Damien. He also tells Thorn that Damien will have the mark of the beast. Three sixes somewhere on his body. The photographer that's been following the family has noticed strange things in his pictures, seeming to foreshadow their untimely deaths. The photographer and Mr. Thorne find the burial site of the mother and miscarried child, but they discover it is a jackal skeleton, like he was told, and the child's skull has a hole smashed in it. Murder. The priest is impaled by a metal pole, and even the photographer himself gets his head sliced off when he goes to Israel with Mr. Thorne. Mrs. Thorne is killed by the governess, pushed out a window at the hospital, and back at home, Mr. Thorne tries to kill Damien after seeing the 666 symbol etched on his scalp. He has to battle with the nanny, manages to fight her off, and take Damien to the church, but police are in hot pursuit. They fire at Mr. Thorne and the screen cuts to black. The film ends with Robert and Catherine Thorne's funeral in Arlington National Cemetery. Damien is seen having been adopted by Robert's brother, the president of the United States. I don't. That's actually a mistake. Because I think it's a friend that's the president of the United States, not his brother. I don't I don't remember the president of the United States being mentioned in this movie (laughs) at all until that last scene. So. Uh, But regardless, Damien looks into the camera and smiles somewhat menacingly as the prophecy of the Antichrist is being fulfilled. Is it? (laughs) We'll talk more about that after we listen to the trailer. Watch the second movie. (laughs) For generations, the Thorns have been a family of tremendous wealth, position and power. The perfect marriage of Ambassador Robert Thorne and his wife, Catherine, was fulfilled by the birth of their son, Damien. And then, something terrible happened. Was it an accident? Was it murder? Was it a coincidence? Or was it an omen? That was so long! Yeah, just like the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Oof! I mean, hey, we didn't need to read the summary. I should have just played that trailer because that was <laughs> that was the plot of the movie right there. Like that wasn't even like most horror movies where they just show you all of the important scenes. The The voiceover narrator of the trailer told you everything that's going to happen in the movie. Yeah. Apt, I guess. Apt trailer for this movie. <laughs> Do you have thoughts for this movie? I, I feel do. like we have to say I should have put it in the warnings. I don't think either Kelly or I like this movie very much. Yeah. So if you really love The Omen, stop listening now. <laughs> I think I again, my goal now, I'm I'm I've learned from when we watched it chapter 2 or whatever the one that sparked this whole thing was. Um that I'm going to try to look for the good things or at least the spin things, the nice things that I can find in it um, while occasionally making sarcastic comments about the bad parts. Um, 
my first point, and I think I said this 10 minutes into watching this movie, that this might just be because of the times we live in, but I really did not care about these rich people. Oh, yeah. Second one, the protagonists of this movie did not interest me. I didn't care what happened to them. Even like the in the trailer just now, they were like always been a family of significant wealth and yeah. power. So, so cool. Alright. White and then, people. And ten seconds into this movie, dude's agreeing to lie to his wife for the rest of her life that this kid is hers because her biological child uh, died. And that just set a bad precedent for me that this rich ambassador is an asshole uh and whatever happens in the next two or three hours is all his fault yep like yep, they yep, yep. and they're i don't know if it's like privilege or thinking that they are above any sort of like bad things happening to them but they did not utilize any of their wealth in an appropriate way like they had so many people at their beck and call. Priests were looking out for them. They had armed guards, connections to the president apparently and did not know how to use any of that to help them with their situation. It always blows my mind when in films you see families where like it's their goal, their ultimate goal to have a kid and then they have the kid and they don't even raise it. Yeah. (laughs) They get a governess or a nanny or whatever. Like we just watched (laughs) The Conjuring and it's like a downtrodden family with like 80 kids doing their best. (laughs) So when the, the scares start to happen, they can't do anything because they're broke if they leave their house. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas this one, it's like they have all the wealth in the world and used none of it to solve their problem. The dude was just like, no, I can do it myself. I won't tell my wife anything and I will solve all these problems. Like they're so used to just automatically being catered to that. Some random lady showed up to their house and was like, Hey, you're such an honored client of the agency that they just sent me over without you even requesting. I'm your new nanny. Hey, how's it going? And they didn't the call agency. the agency. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't interview her. They didn't follow up when she started like disobeying their requests for how to raise their kid. He's like, get rid of the dog. And she's like, okay. And then the dog's still there. And at no point did he, she call the, nobody called the agency to be like, hey, who the fuck did you send to us? <laughs> Because the agency would probably be like, nobody, you we haven't called send us. You, anyone. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. requested anybody. We thought maybe that you were taking some time. Yeah. So D- Damien from the beginning of this movie said, eat the rich and I'm all for it. There you go. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I like that take. It's called The Omen. It should be called Damien. Oh, wait, the second one's called Damien, The Omen too. <laughs> <sighs> Anyways, I just... And I don't know if that was part of my not enjoying this movie. Because again, with like The Conjuring, because I'm just using that because we just watched it. Like you immediately care about the family because they are worth caring about. (laughs) Yeah, I think this film. Well, we'll get into my points later, but I was in it for the first like 45 minutes and then I started to drop off. Yeah, I I dropped off much earlier. And then there was a point in the movie where you're like, all right, I think I'm losing it. Yeah. I think that was about the time where he had made it to the like ancient buried city mm-hmm. and they were explaining how he needs to kill the kid, which honestly was pretty far in the movie. So kudos. My second point is that I tried to watch this movie with a lens of like, it's a classic. It's obviously going to be a bit slower and paced and a bit more. I don't know. I don't know what the proper word for is for classic horror movies, but more reserved. Yes, that's a good word. But this movie was incredibly boring. 
<laughs> a lot of the time with moments of being probably some of the coolest thing I've ever seen, which is not great. I don't think you should hide. I mean, again, OK, grain of salt, classic movie, not whatever. But I don't think you should hide very cool, interesting things within incredibly boring movies. You can have dramatic and well paced movies or like very slow buildups to interesting and cool moments. But the movie was just boring. Um, and again, maybe that's because I didn't give a fuck about the protagonists. Um, but I found the most interesting aspect of the movie from a plot point and not just a visual was the photographer because mm -hmm. whether it was a magic because he's from Titanic. Yeah, he was from <laughs> Titanic. That was the reason why I knew that at some point in the future he would be going down and uh, uh, on a broken ship. No, it was because I don't know if it was a magic camera that he had or if he any camera would do it. And he was just the first person to notice. Um, but he was able to see how people were going to be killed in the future. Um, he saw the like spike coming through the priest. He saw the the noose around the, the neck of the uh, previous nanny. nanny. And he saw himself with a big glass shard through his neck. And th the movie decided that the moment of their death would be the coolest visual moment. And as I said, it's like com even compared to today's standards, they were very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. That like decapitation scene. I have some scary facts about it, but ooh. it's also like one of the most famous, famous, famous horror scenes uh, along with like hereditary. Good. And they listed something else. Um, and that's well-deserved. They were very, yeah. not only just like cool, they weren't, it wasn't just that they were like, oh, that's so neat. It was that they were like visually interesting. Like the, the priest with the steel bar pierced through him was shot like hauntingly casual. It wasn't, it, it had a dramatic buildup, but then like seeing it, it was just almost like what seeing him standing in the grave with the pierced thing through his arm. Or through mm. his entire body. And they just let you sit there and look at it for a while. And that was really cool. And then the photographer tying was like more of a spectacle. And it was like grandiose. But it was still very interesting. And looked visually appealing with his head like bouncing on the glass. <laughs> after it had been capitated. Um, so those were very, both very well done. And even the, the nanny in the beginning. Like seeing her body like fall and hit the glass from like really far away. It almost made you feel like you were spectating it in real life. Mm. Uh, but then you had to watch the rest of the movie and that kid is not carrying this movie, <laughs> which leads me what? into my third, third and final, but short thought is that my only experience with the omen up to this point was watching Seinfeld. Uh, there's an episode where they talk about how each of them had watched, uh, the omen and Jer George is like, so what was the kid? Was he like the son of Satan? And Kramer just says, no, he was just a rambunctious little kid. Honestly, maybe like his reactions to things happening around him just kind of made it seem like he was autistic. And the one time that it looked like it was his fault, which was bumping into his mom with the tricycle. That's a kid move. That's just that's the thing. I wouldn't even say that was his fault. Yeah, that was the nanny opening the door. And then he was just riding his bike. And the nanny did nothing to stop him or watch him properly. Yeah. I think she wanted him to kill her. Exactly. So. Yeah. But like from an outsider's perspective, this kid was perfectly fine and just kind of rambunctious, even like smiling at the camera. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't affected by his parents' death. That's a plausible thing. Maybe he was processing the death of his parents different than most people would. Why don't yeah. you fucking chill movie? <laughs> 
<laughs> it's very strange. And I guess this is kind of also my first point. So I'll just jump in here, too. But I think that they were trying to show us a lot of or like cast doubt over the fact of if he was the son of Satan or not for a long time until the end, until you see the grave of the mother that is the jackal that they had murdered the other baby and that he does have the 666 on his head. Then it's like, oh, OK, he is the devil's son. But it was so much so strange to me that both the mom and the dad were being affected by this kid or like thinking about this kid. I'm like, it's because you didn't fucking actually want a kid. Society made you be like, oh, I that's how life goes. Gotta get hitched. Gotta have a baby. <laughs> but then you had it. And then you're like, oh, hate this. My life's different now. I don't like it. And exactly what you were saying, Kelly, he was just smiling. He yeah. was quiet. He didn't really do anything evil. He really didn't want to go to church, which honestly is vibes. <laughs> yeah, I gave up my religion when I was eight. I think I said that on the show before. I was so damn bored whenever I I had to go to like Sunday school once. And I was like, this is the most boring thing I've ever sat through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you have other things you wanted to say though? No, that's great. Go into your points. I'll, okay. I could just spend more time <laughs> shitting on, shitting on the aspect, the aspects I didn't like. And then occasionally talking about the one or two cool moments. Yeah. We're going to take a moment to talk about our socials and sponsors. This season of drinking and screaming would not be possible without the support of Mad Lab Distillery. With us since the beginning, they have always supported us, and uh, the show would not be the same without them. Support the show and Mad Lab Distillery by trying out some of their handcrafted products. You can get their awesome stuff at a private liquor store near you or at madlabdistilling.com. We are running out of some of their tried and true bitters, and we got to purchase some to support the show. To support to support Mad Lab because they're just that good. We use them all the time. I'm going to go wild on those bitters. Any bitters (laughs) that they have are not safe. I'm going to get all of them. And you should too. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at drink underscore scream on Facebook at drink and scream and you can email us at drinking and screaming at gmail.com. For more information and to buy some merch go to drinking and screaming.com. Let's go back to the episode. (laughs) Well, so my first point was that the kids acting was a bit strange to me, but I also feel like he didn't really there wasn't enough dialogue given to him that it could be seen as good or bad. Like he didn't get a chance, which is interesting because I. In theater, you're often it's like a known saying, like you're believed until you open your mouth as an actor. Once you begin speaking, it's a lot more. That's when like the audience sort of judges you on whether or not you're believable Mm. without like, you know, subconsciously. Yeah. Um, So the kid doesn't have that many lines. He does just like get looks and like smiles or sneers. So I guess that's kind of what they were going for because it relied so heavily on this kid as like a plot point. But also he wasn't enthralling. Like I didn't feel any pull to the kid or scared of the kid myself. I really was just thinking these parents fucked themselves over because they actually don't want a kid. (laughs) Yeah. But I do have to say. 
that there were some really good actors in this film. Ooh. And that's the dogs. Yeah. There were so many Rottweilers in this movie. There's the main one that pops up a few times as like an ominous sign of the devil. Um, and you can see him doing his snarls and his like jowls were all the way up, baring his teeth. And I was like, I bet that dog is the happiest, nicest dog ever. And later on, there's like six dogs that are like attacking them in the graveyard, one of which doesn't even bark or growl or snarl. He just is walking back and forth, <laughs> wagging his tail. Um, so I had to include the scaredy fact here that the biggest problem with shooting Mrs. Baylock's ominous dog was that the animal was nothing like the creature he was supposed to be portraying. All he wanted to do was lick and play with his <laughs> co-stars rather than threaten them. And I was like, oh, I knew it. Nice. <laughs> the best dogs. And no dogs were harmed even in the dog fight scene you don't even see them like hit the dogs or anything which is good yeah. i'm always worried about that kind of stuff he I even don't grabbed like a, like a steel bar and looked like he was going to but was just kind of like waving it like a baton in the air yeah yeah I, thank god i don't know if you have a scaredy fact for this but during the um graveyard scene where the two men were being attacked by the dogs i swear for a moment in the trees i saw handlers I saw a movement that kind of looked like humans, but it could have been something else. Um, I don't have a fact about that, but I feel like that's definitely the case. Yeah. Someone's got to go look back for me because we were watching on 4K. So maybe it was one of those things where it wasn't really visible on a smaller TV or on like a projector or anything like that. Yeah, could be. Hmm. I'm going to go out of order with my thoughts here because I did want to. We sort of talked about this when you were doing your thoughts, Kelly of pulling back the curtain. I feel like this show, I love doing drinking and screaming, but I also feel like it gives pressure to be the perfect horror fan. So I really didn't like this movie (laughs) and seeing everything online about it. I chose it as a sight unseen for the Halloween horror extravaganza. And I just feel like I wasted a movie pick in our busiest or like best month of the year. Um, And I'm sad. (laughs) (laughs) We try to be really diverse in our movie picks, like thinking about the decades that they're released in, the subgenres of the horror featured. And of course, the performers, a lot of the older films that we do are basically all white people. There was no queerness in this film. Mm -hmm. The feminism was non-existent. She had to get permission from her husband to get an abortion. I was like, Um, but also this movie just wasn't good. And yet everyone in the horror community, or it feels like everybody in the horror community is so like, oh, the omen is great. I love the omen. It's like better than the exorcist. A lot of people are saying, and I really don't see that at all. It felt so drawn out for me. And I don't know, maybe it's because I'm not really religious. Or like afraid of religion or anything. I'm sort of like apathetic to religion. And this was a very religious movie. Yeah. It was catered to rich people and religious people, which is not a demographic that I fall in at all. Yeah. So I would agree that maybe it was just not our scene. Again, I would be on Damien's side. I'd be like, hell yeah, bring the devil here. Let's cleanse the world. This place is a shithole. Fuck the eat the rich. (laughs) Uh, like when we watched The Orphan, you were like, get yours, lady. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. So, I mean, I'm just not the right demographic for rich old people having troubles with their kid. <laughs> yeah, same. That, you're, you, you're making me feel valid in my thoughts. <laughs> 
I appreciate that. Thank you for standing by me uh, as I discuss this. I also wanted my last point is about the music of the film. There's this like heavily choir Latin song that gets sung a lot. Uh, they use it whenever there's something scary about to happen. And I think it's supposed to really like add to the tension and the drama of the movie. But it's also the type of song that I really just don't like. Um, and I just didn't. I don't know. It was like not something that elevated the movie for me. It did win an Oscar. It won Best Original Song. Or sorry, it didn't win, but it was nominated. Um, and it's called Ave Satani, which is like Hail Satan. Hmm. I wanted to point that out. But um, yeah, I don't know. It didn't it didn't elevate the movie for me. That's fair. Did you? How do you feel about the music? Uh, I mean, I have to add a disclaimer that I don't know if it was our TV or the movie in general, but the mixing was really weird. So whenever there was an action scene, we had to turn the volume down. And then every time there was talking, we had to turn it up. And I, I've tried so many things to like equalize the audio. Um, so it was like hard sometimes to hear the music, but I don't like uh, ill deserved is a bad word for it. I guess the movie, the music was too epic for what was going on. <laughs> Um, and I just think that that's true. Maybe if what we were seeing was more visually horrific, it, I would like it. Yeah, because I don't know. I, I think that music does a really good job at elevating a scene and sort of informs the, the viewer how they should be feeling. And the fact that we were we were given music that was like something really dramatic and Christ like is happening right now, but it didn't help. It kind of tells you how bad the scene was. <laughs> yeah. But that's it for me. Um, I really don't have any positives to say about this movie. So that's where I'm going to end. <laughs> that's fair. So we don't have a kid, but we do have a body. And I figured buddy. it would probably be good to uh, hire a nanny to take care of buddy. You know, when we're out on the town and do an ambassador bullshit. Um, <laughs> I didn't interview her. I don't know where she came from, but she did come with a, a collection of books and I'm just kind of curious about this one in particular. You know, this one. Look at it. It's, it's fleshy. Yeah, it's very fleshy. There is a face. Um, so I think it's time to open the Reconomicon. I was going to imitate the music, but then I was like, it's going to be bad. So I just stay quiet. That's a different video game. Um, my recommendation is odd. Uh, it's sort of a uh, potpourri of recommendations. So the original is uh, The Twilight Zone. It's a Good Life from 1961. It's an episode of The Twilight Zone uh, about a young boy who has like powers and he can banish people to a cornfield if they have bad thoughts. It's uh, it's an interesting premise and they remade it a bunch. So you can also watch the Treehouse of Horror 2 episode of The Simpsons uh, where they parry it. And I've heard some people compare it to the uh, USS Callister from uh, Black Mirror, uh, which has a similar vibe to it. But it's also an, a grown ass adult man doing it, which makes it kind of creepier. So uh, check those out and you can look up any other uh, remakes that they have done. That's uh, The Twilight Zone. It's a good life from 1961. Yeah. <laughs> nice. My recommendation is Little Evil from 2017, which honestly is just an all around better version <laughs> of this movie. There were a lot of references to it, mainly with Damien's uh, outfit being like basically identical in this film. It's a horror comedy that's done well. 
which I I'm always recommending horror comedies that are I always say are like, oh, and this one's good. But in my <laughs> I don't know, uh, I don't love horror comedies, but this one was done well. And it's about, you know, an evil little kid that might be a demon. That's Little Evil from 2017. Nice. Uh, Scaredy facts. There, I did a little bit of choir. This is the part of our podcast where we've dropped the kids off with the nanny. Uh, We've got a night to ourselves in our multi-story, multi-room mansion. And uh, we're just flipping through the newspaper. Reading trivia facts about the movie we just watched uh, to prove that uh, Damien wasn't the spawn of Satan. He just needed some therapy. Yeah. Being a horror classic, there are lots of. Wow. That was so like hosty of me. (laughs) What was that voice that just came out of me? Uh, Lots of trivia for this. So I'm excited to get into the scaredy facts. But of course, starting off with the budget. This was an estimated two point eight million dollars to create the omen. But I found something interesting in the trivia on IMDb. It says more than twice the film's original 2.8 million budget was spent on the film's advertising and promotion. Wow. So this is something not just about this movie, but about every movie we ever talked about. I didn't realize that the budget we see doesn't include the promotion, the marketing strategy. That's true. So wild to me. Absolutely wild. Now, this movie was a success. It gross worldwide right now is at 60.93 wow. million. I'm, I mean, I'm not surprised. I'll, I will say that I, I am not surprised that this movie was a success. The time period that it came out, it would be very much like this is like satanic panic kind of. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I'm just saying now I don't like it. It's bad now. It was probably good then. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did some talking about the child actor Harvey Stevens in this movie. And my first scaredy fact is about him. So Harvey Stevens as Damien was largely chosen for this role from the way he attacked Richard Donner during auditions. Donner asked all the little boys to come at him as if they were attacking <laughs> Catherine Thorne during the church wedding scene. Stevens screamed and clawed at Donner's face and kicked him in the (laughs) groin during his act. Donner whipped the kid off him, ordered his blonde hair be dyed black and cast him as Damien then and there. Wow. So he's not a good actor. He just fucked up. the. was violent. Yeah. (laughs) But with the script, that's actually very smart because that was probably the most acting the kid had to do was that one scene. So focusing on that was an excellent audition idea. This is a scary fact about animals and their safety in the movie. So when the mom gets pushed off of the railing and she breaks her back or whatever, uh, there's a fishbowl that falls to the ground and you can see that dead sardines painted orange were used (laughs) in place of actual goldfish since director Richard Donner refused to kill goldfish for the sake of making a movie. Which I was like, those fish are huge, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) And he was fine with that. Yeah, I really appreciate it. It didn't uh, remove any sort of believability that was happening in the movie for me. One of the director's first requests to screenwriter David Seltzer was to remove all suggestions of the supernatural, such as cloven hoofed demons and witches covens. The golden rule was that nothing was allowed in the script that couldn't happen in real life. The idea was that there should be some degree of doubt over whether or not Thorne was deranged, Mm. which does go with what we were feeling like this kid could just be a regular kid. Yeah, maybe it's different. It's like a Rorschach test. If you look at this and you think that uh, Damien is bad, 
then you probably don't like your own kids. <laughs> and if you look at it and you think that Thorn is bad, then you have been pushed down by capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm finished my uh, cocktail and I'm a bit sad because it was very delicious. Oh, we have a lot. <laughs> what am I going to put rhubarb liqueur in? <laughs> I don't know. This thing. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> and some bad lemon juice. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't bad. <laughs> I kind of skipped over this part because it wasn't critical in our synopsis, but there is a moment where the mom takes Damien to the zoo and they see like giraffes running away from Damien. A few different animals react negatively towards him. And the biggest one is a pack of baboons that uh, go wild in the zoo, start like attacking the car. So to make the baboons attack the car in the Windsor Zoo Park scene, an official from the zoo was in the back seat of the car with a baby baboon. Hmm. But the baboons had no response at all. They then took the head of the baboons and the baboons outside were incredibly upset. The head like the... Uh, Not the alpha. Yeah. I was like, (laughs) for a moment, I was like, no, the daughter would not. Daughter's like, you know, a goldfish. I'm not killing a goldfish, but I will decapitate a baby baboon in seconds. (laughs) (laughs) But no, you know, the the chief. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Also, Lee Remick's terror as the baboons attack the car was real. And I feel like I would be very scared to be in that scene as well. No amount of training will prevent the one moment that a baboon wants to rip your skin off yeah like it, it, and they were just baboons from a zoo they weren't like movie baboons oh boy <laughs> yeah intense the film oh, they seemed, were in a car yeah okay <laughs> okay this one is interesting this is one of those cursed movies where it's actually so many things happen that i'm almost like wow this is too much for coincidence so the film seemed to fall victim to a sinister curse Star Gregory Peck and screenwriter David Seltzer took separate planes to the UK, yet both planes were struck by lightning. (laughs) While producer Harvey Bernhard was in Rome, lightning just missed him. Rottweilers that were hired for the film apparently attacked their trainers. A hotel at which director Richard Donner was staying at got bombed by the IRA. Wow. He also was hit by a car after Peck canceled another flight to Israel. The plane that he would have been on killed, uh, crashed and everybody died on day one of the shoot. Several principal members of the crew survived a head on car crash and it continued into post-production when special effects artist John Richardson was injured and his girlfriend was beheaded in an accident on the set of A Bridge Too Far just after this film. What the fuck? <laughs> That's so many bad things. So many. What the? Wow. I, mm, I'm a pretty <laughs> skeptical person in like, not just like the, that supernatural stuff. I don't really believe in too much, but I'm slightly skeptical that all of these things are true. But if they are, that is wild. Like, You did say they spent a lot of the budget or they spent extra budget on advertising. I'm curious sometimes how many of these quote unquote cursed occurrences during production Mm. are part of that advertisement because I could be convinced that they are. But also it's not too unlikely that all of these things happened around the same time. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the injuries, the actors and people involved still 
have them to this day. So they are all accurate. I mean, I know for a fact that the Bridge Too Far massacre happened where people were beheaded. It's it's intense. I mean, let's also call out the film industry a little bit. People driving home super tired because they've been working like 20 hour shifts to get the stupid yeah. movie done. Yeah. Uh, not rare, but uh, yeah. wow. Rip. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's an interesting one. The screenwriter, David Seltzer, has claimed that he only wrote the script because he needed the money. He has also asserted he said it in London as he fancied a trip to England. <laughs> he said of the film, I did it strictly for the money. I was flat broke. I do find it horrifying how many people believe all this silliness. Nice. So I did want to include this here for myself, really, because I was like, I am bad horror fan because I do not like this movie. The fucking writer did not like this movie, so it's okay. (laughs) I also appreciate the honesty of like, I made this movie because I needed money. I mean, yeah, jobs. Like so many, uh, so many writers, writers and directors and stuff are like, my, my heart is in this movie. And if you don't, if you're not as much of an auteur as I am, then you're just ruining the film industry. And dude's like, (laughs) I needed money. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, the person who was decapitated, David Warner, the, in the in the movie, sorry, fake decapitated, uh, he got to keep his severed head for years. But then, twist that I'm very sad about, actually, when he was divorced, his ex-wife obtained custody of it and he lost his severed head. That's so sad. Yeah, that sucks. I don't know the story behind it. Maybe he wanted her to have it. I don't know. But I just know that He doesn't have it anymore. His ex-wife does. I like to think that it was not amicable and she just wanted to like mount his severed head to be like (laughs) to be able to look at it as some sort of catharsis, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, boy. But then Millie Shapiro from Hereditary didn't get to keep her severed head. Yeah. What is this bullshit? Yeah. If you haven't listened to our Hereditary episode, you should. Yeah. We got Millie Shapiro to come and it was great. Last scaredy fact in the closing scene. And honestly, in many of them, I didn't include all the scaredy facts about this, but it was featured throughout. Richard Donner, the director, used reverse psychology on young Harvey Stevens, telling him, don't you dare laugh. If you laugh, I won't be your friend. And naturally, the kid wanted to laugh. And so instead, he held it back, but smiled directly into the camera for that closing shot. Was he supposed to? Smile? Yes, okay. that's the whole point. That's the reverse psychology. So gotcha. like, don't oh. laugh. And then the kid's like, <laughs> <laughs> I gotcha. <laughs> I also thought that um, you'd brought up during the church scene when Thorne finally brought Damien to the church and was like dragging him across the floor. You were like, this must have been so fun. Yeah. Like, Damien was like in PJs and Thorne was just literally just like sliding him across the church floor. And it's like hardwood that's been like polished. So everything's like super slidey. Yeah. Must have been a great time for the kid. Mm-hmm. Apparently he was terrible to work with, though. He was an asshole on set. They didn't the hire an actor. They hired an <laughs> aggressive young kid who attacked someone and kicked him in the crotch. The fuck did they expect? (laughs) But that's it for me. My final thought is I'm so sorry. (laughs) For us not liking it or for making me watch it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, My final thought is, I don't know. Watch it to say you watched it or just look for the interesting scenes on YouTube. We won't judge you. Anybody who's a real film, like up their own ass buff, doesn't listen to us. And if they did at some point, they stopped <laughs> listening to us a while ago. So it'll be our secret that you've not fully watched The Omen. 
Just watch someone get a spike through them and beheaded. And then whenever someone asks, be like, yeah, I've seen the omen. Yeah, it's that's you, true. You know I what it's about now. I think we curated our, our <laughs> nice quality 1,000 people that listen to every episode. That's all we really need. And this is a <laughs> pact now. If you listen to us and you hear someone say they've watched the omen and you pick up on some of the signs that they have, are they that they haven't? Don't you narc? <laughs> don't you narc on them? <laughs> well, that's been the Omen, a movie about a rambunctious little kid and his clumsy rich parents. <laughs> Next week, we'll be continuing our Halloween celebrations by watching Spree from 2020. And remember, always scream responsibly. Thank you for listening to Drinking and Screaming. Drinking and Screaming is produced and edited by Charlene Bear. Our sound engineer and logo designer is Kelly Wright. And it's hosted by, yep, you guessed it, Kelly Wright and Charlene Bear. For bonus episodes, Patreon poll, voting privileges, and exclusive rewards, become a patron at patreon.com slash drinkandscream. Want a shout out? Review us on Apple Podcasts and we'll read your review live on the show. For more information, check out our website, drinkingandscreaming.com. 